we look down on ancient societies and wonder how polygamy could be so widely practiced. But are we really that much different? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. In Obergefell, which basically legalized two men marrying in the United States, the Supreme Court redefined marriage. But in doing that, John Roberts, who was one of the dissenting opinions, he wrote that that basically by doing this, if this by this reasoning and by this legal reasoning, if you do this, you basically legalize plural marriage, that you can't say that... If two men can marry, why can't one man marry two wives? And in Hollywood immediately took up after this and started to put television shows like Sister Wives where they were kind of promoting polygamy. But don't we already basically accept polygamy in our society if we use a biblical definition? I think when you start talking about the word polygamy, it's a, it's a word that, talk, that references this practice that in a sense is so foreign to us. And then you you throw on top of it those things like those Hollywood shows, Sister Wives, or things like that, that really other the concept. It makes you think about, you know, oh, a man who's got these family, various different families that he's got divided up in his house, or he's got houses scattered about that have all of these different wives and children in them, and he's got to figure out how to juggle all that. And, and that's sort of the picture that comes to mind when you think about polygamy. But is it the same picture that comes to mind when you think about, say, some other celebrity that you hear about all of his baby mamas that he has? You know, you hear about some celebrity that's got nine kids with four different women or something like that. You know, like Elon Musk or something that has all of these children spread across these various different women. If you go back and you look at what the Bible has to say about polygamy, I think we would start thinking about those kinds of cases very differently. We would start saying, oh, we're not actually that different than those stereotypes that we have. I think in ways what we've done is actually made polygamy more damaging to the woman than what biblical polygamy was, right? Biblical polygamy, when you look at it, I mean, even a concubine, they had certain rights and certain expectations. Now we just say you can abandon the, the woman and you don't have any responsibilities. You don't have any ongoing, you know, responsibilities other than maybe some maintenance for the child. And so what we've basically done is made polygamy a lot worse than it has been historically practiced by accepting the fact that one man can sleep with many women, can have children with many women, and the obligation to those women, maybe to the children it continues, but to the women it doesn't continue. And that's that's like more pagan, more more damaging to women, more unrighteous towards women than than historical polygamy, where you actually have a marriage and you actually have continuing responsibilities. So, so our you know suggestion here or uh, proposal here is that you know with this uh, you know th- this we're, we're in these situations we have nowadays where people are you know having relations with all kinds of different people um, that they are effectively uh, having marriage like relationships with those people. And, and that's discussed in Scripture in 1 Corinthians six fifteen through 16, where it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And so he is uh, here referencing 
you know, a situation where someone has gone to a harlot where they're obviously not considering that a marriage. But he is saying, actually, that's you're becoming one body with her. And he is um, saying that that is the two should become one flesh, which is back in Genesis where marriage is instituted. So he's saying that you are effectively marrying uh, this woman. So the people who go and just see how many women they can sleep with, I mean, biblically, they would be considered polygamous even though we in our society just think they're playing the field or whatever other term they want to use, when the reality is they're creating relationships there that have spiritual connections that continue beyond that one physical act. Because that's how God designed man and woman. That's how he designed us. And what we've done by defining polygamy the way that we have is that we've made it about the covenant rather than about the joining. It's about what man has done rather than what God has done. And there's a part of it where even where within the church, one of the things we've done is, well, we've said marriage should be by covenant. It is desirable that marriage be by covenant. But we've kind of said we've we've sort of in some ways redefined marriage ourselves because we've said the other ones aren't really marriage. The other ones don't have responsibility with them beyond maybe an economic, a financial aspect. Towards the children, I think, typically. Right. And I mean, there is, there is, you know, there can be some. After a divorce, there can be, but not if you're not. Right. If there's no covenant of marriage, the covenant of marriage is what transfers the financial responsibility. And there was a part where you used the term earlier about concubine. And I mean, and one of the things in scripture is where you would say, like, the difference between a wife and a concubine is a a wife. There's the formal wife, which is someone you marry by covenant. And then there's the concubine, which does not necessarily have a covenant. But then you can say, like, with Keturah and Abraham, where. He says she's his concubine, and it also says she's his wife. And so there's a part of it where God is saying, I recognize that there are different types of marriages. But at the same time, God says, I look at them and I say, it's still, it is still marriage, and I still, see, I still see a concubine as a wife. And so we need to understand that you know, this isn't something that – this goes back to a pretty central theme to a lot of the discussions we have is God is God, and he gets to define things. And as much as the church even – even operating under good principles and going, we want to encourage covenanted marriage, we don't have the authority to de, de, you know, to deauthorize the actions of man and to say that man does not have obligation when God says he does. And I mean, you, you look at the picture of Ruth, right? When Ruth goes into Boaz, which Boaz is a picture of Christ there, and Ruth goes into Boaz and uncovers its feet. She is basically saying, I want to be your wife, whether by covenant or not. Right. I mean, you look at Naomi's advice to her. Naomi's like, you go to him and you say, do with me what you will. I mean, it is, it is, I am putting myself in your power. And that, you know, in general, women should, we should not be encouraging women to do that in most cases. with But but, but Naomi is going, he is a righteous man so that you can do it. And the point was you should be his wife, whether by covenant or not. Right. Which is a picture of what we should do with Christ. He should be our, bro- our groom, whether by covenant or not. But, of course, he is a good God, and he does it by covenant because he's righteous. But, but the whole point there is that Naomi is sending her there to be his wife, whether by covenant or not. And so when we look at it, I mean, Scripture understands this and understands it creates this obligation that now we've just said there is no obligation there. It just disappears. 
I mean, now as a society, you know, people are even starting to brag about what they call their body count, which is how many men that a woman sleeps with or how many, you know, women that a man sleeps with. And, you know, the it has been consistently increasing over the years where now it's not unusual for a woman to have slept with seven different men. I think for men, it's something like 10 different women. And so it's just very, there's this, this pressure even on the society where the society is saying, this is normal. This is how it should be that, you know, why would you, why would you marry the first woman that you sleep with? Because you need experience to figure out who's the right woman to sleep with or to, to spend your life with and that you need to experience the sex in order to understand if this is the right one for you or not. And so our culture and the way that we're raising the young people and the, the, the societal pressures to cause somebody that's in high school to, to have sex sooner and more often with more partners. I mean, this, this really is pushing as a society, we push for polygamy. I mean, and that's aside from the, the, you know, it's still somewhat unusual where people are actually in, you know, quote unquote committed relationships with multiple people. And, you know, I don't, I don't think there's that many people out there that, do it, you know, it's a percentage of the population, but they are people who advertise them their relationship very heavily, you know, online and whatnot, saying this is, you know, everyone should be, or more people should be doing this. Although there's still something like, I mean, estimates that I've seen, I'm not sure how accurate they are, where, you know, 30% of men commit adultery. So even when they're in a, adultery, meaning that they're having relations with another woman while they're married. So this is very common. We just don't call it polygamy. But I think one of the big questions with polygamy is why why was it allowed in the Old Testament law? I think a better question is why was it regulated? I mean, because in the end, I think there's a part of it where people, you kind of talk about it being allowed, but in the end, there's an aspect of where there's no law that goes, it's okay for you to go out and there's no law that sanctions a person going out and saying, I want to pick up multiple wives. It's more like it's regulated that there are situations where men either marry multiple wives or there can be situations where men may even be required to have another wife because of other sins. There are going to be behaviors that that need to be regulated, and this is what the law was given for, was because of transgressions. And it's really important to recognize, right, that Jesus Christ said from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was one man and one woman. He's right. not saying that from the beginning that it was that polygamy was acceptable. Polygamy was rejected from the very beginning because God created Adam and Eve. And that was the first marriage. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. That's the ideal. And so then when you look at the Old Testament, it's not saying it's okay in any circumstances. It's saying it's regulated because you're right. The nature of man is this is what people do. And because of their sin, that there has to be constraints on it because sexual relationships produce real lasting effects, real lasting conditions on the people. If a man rapes a woman, that has real effect on her for the rest of her life. If the, a man commits adultery with a woman that produce a child, that has real effects. So these things are going to happen. So God put in the regulations in the Old Testament how you deal with these circumstances. And like in that verse that was read in Corinthians, I mean, so even when a man sleeps with a harlot, there is a connection there that occurs. It does not mean that every time a man has slept with a harlot that they are married in exactly the same way that they are married in the sense under the eyes of the law, that they have all the obligations to each other that two people who are married have. But God's saying, even in the most casual sexual relation between a man and a woman, there is a fundamental thing that occurs. And God says, you cannot throw that away. 
You cannot trivialize it. You are joined in a way, and that has consequences. Because, you know, we talk about that it's going to happen, and so God regulated it. But it's really important for us to recognize that the society and the cultural norms really do set a different tenor and that they can really have a huge impact on the constraint of sin. You go back, you know, 100 years ago in American society, or maybe 110 years ago would be diff- would be better, but you go back and there was a real different constraint in the society. And it doesn't mean that nobody slept around. They did. But the percentage of people that were doing it were a lot different. The fact that everybody looked at some a woman that was sleeping around and considered her to be, you know, a slut, considered her to be, you know, damaged goods. That had a real effect on constraining a lot of the other women. And then you have, like, the Roaring Twenties. In the Roaring Twenties, that wasn't the attitude. And all of a sudden, you have a lot more of casual sex. And then you have the Thirties and the Forties, and and it goes up and down depending on how the society views it and the, and the, the sexual mores of the society. And so we shouldn't also just kind of go, well, it's going to happen, so you have to regulate it. The reality is a society can set the what it's, the expectation is of the society and really have a big difference or big impact on it. And, and it's very easy to ignore that, you know, because we've looked at what's happened in the 60s where there was an explosion of it. You know, in the 70s, the 80s, there wasn't constraint of it. We have television come in, which sexualizes everything and tries to, to increase the libido about everything. And so there's been a real drive that's been consistent. But even if you look in previous decades before that, it would go up and down depending on how society was looking at it. And so we shouldn't just go, well, it's going to happen. We should also go, depending on how the society is viewing it, how the parents are teaching their children, how you know people treat people who are who are you know having sexual relations with many people, that has a big impact on how widespread it is. Right. When you say it's going to happen, it, will, it may occur, but it's not going to happen in the sense you go, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just going to happen. I mean, people, I mean, you can even look at this even in today's culture, in today's society. If you travel to somewhere like the UAE and you get off the plane there, they don't allow like you to kiss in public. And so you can have someone like from, you could have someone who is very, very openly sexual, they travel there, their behavior will be different in that area because they don't want to be arrested. They don't want to have fines. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, it's really easy to go, you can't control people's behaviors. People will do whatever they want. No, that's just not true. People are very flexible. And so there's a part of it where there have been times in history where if you had an affair, you'd lose your job. There have been times if you had an affair, it would cost you, it would cost you greatly. And there were lots of people who they literally didn't have an affair. They put boundaries in their life. They put protections around themselves to keep them away from things because the social cost was too high. And we've just pretended like that's just not true. And, and you know, there's we're, we're products of the culture that we live in, in at least a very significant part of how we think. And so we we look at things and think they're normal and then think that the way that it was handled in other societies or even handled in the law that God gave to the nation of Israel and say that, well, those were obviously worse than how we handle it now. Like, you know, now you have rampant divorce and we think, well, that's unfortunate, but at least we don't have rampant polygamy. Well, you know, how can we say that the one that we came up with is better than the system that God came up with. 
And even when God says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, there's points where God goes, you can say you're divorced, and I say I consider you to still be married, right? I mean, so I mean, the fact that you walked in front of someone and he says, I've separated you, and God goes, no, you're, this is not something you're allowed to divorce over. Those are, I mean, we just need to understand that man thinks we have the authority to do what we want, and God says you don't. I mean, you, you remember why John the Baptist was killed is because he's got this feud with Herod over the lawfulness of Herod's marriage. Right. I mean, and Herod is married, and John says it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he died for it. Right. And I do think it's worthwhile going back to the specific example that Joshua just used, which is the way it works now, right, is a man is married. He then finds a woman that he commits an affair with. And then in order to marry her, he divorces his first wife. He gets rid of his connection with his children. He breaks all that off. And then he marries the other woman. And we go, well, that's good. That's how it should be. That's, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's, But consider that compared to how polygamous societies do it where, well, he's married to her. And now he's married to a second wife. She's not going to be happy about it. But her parents, her children still have a father. They're still in the same house or in a house that he's going to. She still has certain rights. The the adulterous woman has that was committing adultery with him. He she has rights. But if you look at it and you look at the damage done, it seems to me that that regulation in general is going to be less damaging to the children in particular than the way we have it now. And and we want to look and say we're modern and we. We know how to do it, and you look at God's law, and God's law would say they take a second wife. But they can't reduce the the inheritance of the first wife, the hated wife, right? The Bible even says very specifically, you can't disinherit the child of a hated wife. And so, you know, God regulated in such a way that's protecting the children and the first wife a lot better than our system, which basically just goes, you have to get rid of her. You know, it, when polygamy is discussed, it's all, often talked about that it's regulated, not endorsed, you know, which is true, but it's easy to take that too far and to say that, well, there, God couldn't do anything about it. You know, he, he polygamy was there, so he just had to deal with it. Instead of saying that, well, look at all the other things that were common in society, you know, sacrificing children to idols, you know, high places worshiping false gods. You know, here's a whole list of things that were wicked, and God said these are abominations, you may not do them. And there's no provision, there's no regulation of here's how you can only sacrifice one of your children to Molech, that's all we'll allow, you can have one high place per town. No, not all of that, despite the fact that they still did a lot of those things. But all of that was illegal under God's law. But this is different in that, you know, not that it is right, not that there you can be sinless and, and be a polygamist, um, but that um, that it was it was it was a chosen solution for particular purposes to deal with sin. And so, I mean, I do think that the reason that God deals with the sexual relations so differently than he does, like you, the example you used of, of sacrificing a child to Moloch has to do with the fact that it ties to the gospel, because the picture of marriage is the picture of the gospel. And because it is the picture of the gospel, God allows other things to to be regulated, to be, um, to be in society so people see how the gospel is distorted and perverted. And so to see how things that are not acceptable to God 
happen all the time in the spiritual realm. For instance, you marry Christ. You become a a believer, quote-unquote. You make a profession of faith. You get baptized. You join a church. You're attending church regularly, but yet you every Sunday afternoon you go work because you also love money and you desire to have money, and you say, I can't rest because I have to work seven days a week. Well, that's the same as a polygamist, right? Spiritually, that is a polygamist. You're choosing two gods, and you say, I'm married to Christ, but I can also marry another one. And so God puts the physical picture of polygamy in the world because it is so common in the spiritual realm so that we can see it and we can see the evil of it by having it regulated in the world, as opposed to just being put out of the world like You know, it's very obvious when you murder somebody that that is destroying God's image and that's wrong. But the the different ways that marriages get perverted, God points to those throughout the scripture going, yeah, this is this is how you're treating me. I'm your husband and this is how you're treating me. And so God keeps all those pictures around and regulates them and it's sin and it's all those other things. But that we can see the physical sin so we can understand the spiritual equivalent of that physical sin. When you look at the way that that polygamy is regulated, you can see cases there where an individual man is obviously in sin, and yet there's a way that that sin is the way that God uses that is still to give a picture of the gospel. For example, you have Solomon who has seven hundred wives; he's got three hundred concubines; he has a thousand women from all of the nations of the earth. First Kings eleven one to three. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So there's this tension there. Where God had said, God had told the kings of Israel that things are not supposed to multiply, horses, money, and wives, and Solomon has much of all of these, and the reasons are is you you know you don't want them to draw your heart away, you don't want these these wives to draw your heart away to serve other gods. So, in that human sense, what he did was wrong, and it cost him dearly. It ended up causing the nation to divide in the next generation. But on the other hand, Solomon is, he's the son of David. And this is a picture of Christ, who Christ's bride is from all the nations of the world. And so there's, there's a way that you can look at what Solomon is doing and say, okay, I can see a picture of Christ there. There's some twisting and distorting because Solomon had to marry a thousand different women in order for me to see that picture, whereas Christ's bride is this conglomerate. It's one unified bride, but from many different people. And even Solomon's insufficiency is a picture of the contrast of Christ versus man, yeah. right? I mean, Solomon is, Jesus Christ is taking, and he's purifying all of them. He's Jesus Christ's heart isn't going to be pulled away by his brides. He's going to purify his bride. Solomon could not purify all these women. He could not, and so, I mean, even that contrast is a picture of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Solomon could never fulfill the prophecy that was given to David's kingdom, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. And so you even see that contrast in how that plays out. And you see the picture of fruitfulness from it. You see all these other things and all the children that he has. But, I mean, it's worth reading Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. 
And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And so with Solomon, the wives took his heart with Christ. He does exactly the opposite. He joins us into his kingdom. He joins us as his priest. He joins us to God as opposed to being taken away. But throughout Scripture, we see this this picture of marriage where marriage is taking away, right? I mean, you see with, with Balak and, and all that events where they then send in their women and the women take the hearts of the men away. And so you see you see over and over again throughout throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament how this is. And, and yes, it is the man whose heart's being taken away. But you see it, the picture of it being taken away from God by these women and by things of the world and that God uses that as a picture of idolatry. So, so we have to see both of those in there. We can see ourselves, we should see ourselves as the ones that can go so easily distracted into love of things of the world away from God. And so I think God puts those pictures there so you can see it, which is, you know, Jeremiah 2.20 would be an example of this in scripture where it's using that, that same language of like lying with a harlot. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress, when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. And so as the church, we can play the harlot. We can play the man that chases after somebody else when we are supposed to have been married another. And and God regulates all these things so that we can see spiritual realities in the in the physical things around us. And so when we look at um, how, how polygamy is regulated in the Old Testament, the details are important. Um, the details are, you know, w- worth discussing here. And so let's, let's read a few verses from Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 through 24. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So this is, you know, there's some particular, you know, this is this is describing people in a very particular category. You know, where you have um, a man, his marital status is unmentioned, and you have a woman who is betrothed. And I believe this would also apply to someone who's married, you know, so he's betrothed, even though the marriage isn't brought to a fulfillment, she is considered as already married to someone else. Which is, I mean, kind of to step back a little bit, I mean, this is part of the complication, right? Because the marriage, the consummation of the marriage is the creating of the the physical bond that is part of being married, that you can do that without the covenant, but the covenant also causes you to enter into marriage. So betrothal is where you've entered into covenant and you're considered married even though it hasn't been consummated. So even God in his His wisdom is defining marriage and saying that there's there's marriage, but there's different kinds of marriages in the sense that the covenant is already entering into marriage, but you can just sleep and that sleep with a woman, and that enters into a covenant of marriage as well. And so, you know, all marriages aren't the same marriages. And so when he talks about, you know, the, the, the wife by covenant of your youth, like in Malachi, that's clearly different than sleeping with one, but that still makes her your wife. So, you know, in, in this particular case, 
what's going on, what, what's, what's really important to note is that the reason that they are put to death is because the woman is married, effectively. The men's marital status in this is irrelevant. It's not mentioned. It's the fact that the woman's married and that it's, it's not a rape. Also, it's assumed that, that she has some culpability. But the man gets put to death regardless. Yes, he gets put to death as well. So, I mean, and, and regardless, meaning in the sense of literally, this is the level of protection that was put on marriage. Was if someone is betrothed, someone else can't go and say, I'm going to seduce this woman who's betrothed. Betrothal put a, there was a, marriage was that level of protected. I mean, and we, and we have these ideas of like alienation of affection laws that have existed, which are kind of remnants of this idea here. Was that if, that, um, if a man goes and seduces a married woman, you, he could be prosecuted for alienation of affection because he, he has a right to respect the fact that this other person is married. And today we go, well, what's fair, it's fair game. If you can get her to come to you, then you get her to come to you. And, I mean, this is part of this was it was a, it was a foundational block of society that marriage created societal structure. It created stability. It created and it, it pointed to things of God and pointed to things that God had established. And so, I mean, this isn't like a minor thing. These are these are really basic fundamental blocks of kind of justice and culture and how you think about the the sanctity of what God has established. And it basically is defining the importance of family and the importance of the family structure being the structure from which the church is built, from which the society is built, that it's where children are trained, it's where honors taught, it's where all these things are created. And if you allow that to be undermined, then that causes all kinds of other destruction in society. So God is regulating that because that is how he protects society. And what we've sort of said is we go, all that matters is the individual's happiness. Right, and even where you said, like the alienation of affection. I mean, think how weak that is compared to a man going and seducing a woman who is engaged to be married, which is basically betrothal, where they've, I mean, it should be done more strongly with an oath, with a covenant, but yet at the same time, we go, well, you know, we'll charge you a fine because you alienated affection rather than being put to death, which is what the Bible says is the proper judgment. Right. It's putting the importance of marriage on a whole different scale than where God would put it. So that particular passage isn't exactly about polygamy, but it's a relevant stepping stone to what comes up just a few verses later. So you jump to Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 to 29. You see this. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. So why do we, again, polygamy is nowhere used in this particular context, but notice what's not mentioned at all is the man who seizes the woman and lies with her, his marital state isn't mentioned. He could be a married man. This could be a married man who has decided that, you know, he's just going to seize this woman, and and then all of a sudden he loses a lot of power in what happens next. And and it's very, it's, it's important to there are other verses. Again, this is case law. And so, I mean, there's not a requirement. The father does not have to require to allow him to marry her. But if he does, there's going there's there's a financial payment, and then there is in his marriage there is restriction on his ability to end that marriage. And so, I mean, and you should think about how this 
this would really shape a society as well. I mean, I remember when I read this a long time ago, one of my first thoughts was, imagine a powerful senator who seduces an intern, and all of a sudden he has to marry that intern, and he ha- he can't divorce her for the rest of his days. That starts to be something that, sl- you know, would that have slowed Bill Clinton down? Would that have slowed, you know, would that have... Would that have caused them to be slower in their actions if they said, the society around me views my actions toward this person so seriously that they might require me to marry her? And, and, like, and you can look at, you can imagine a father who looks at a daughter and goes, she's been trying to get, this is what my daughter's, she's wanted a politician husband for years. She's wanted something like this. She's, this, this, is, this is a good arrangement for her. This, you know, they could have somebody else who goes, I absolutely don't want my daughter to be in this situation. It starts to create lots of complexity that could be involved here. But it's very clear that, I mean, it views the father as having authority over the daughter. It views the society as having an expectation that marriage, that, that sexual relationship be treated as very serious. And we've lost, a, we've lost almost all of those aspects of this. I think, you know, if you were making a list of top 10 offensive Old Testament laws to modern America, this would probably make the list and probably towards the top of the list. You know, and one of the things that I think people would take issue with is, well, what about what about you know, we're we're assuming, you know, this man is married, you know, because we're talking about polygamy. We're assuming this man is married and now he's going to, you know, the law and the woman's father are obligating him to now have a second wife because of his actions. Well, what about his first wife? I mean, how could the law be so cruel to her? You know, what it, what is it doing to her? You know, now now she has to live with this other woman for the rest of her life. And, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, that thought comes to us is because we're, 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 we're pretending like because um, we're not, we're, because he is not being forced into that, you know, legal covenant marriage with this other woman, that therefore his actions don't have consequences and that he doesn't still have to live with that. You know, and that's just not the case. You know, the, the 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 reality is he was united and made one with her, and that that has long term consequences. It's not like he he you know in modern America he goes on without consequences. That his marriage is then happy and without a cloud in the sky. That's just not the case. If just imagine the case where if this law were in force right now, the way that it could potentially change sexual relationships. Well, and I want to give a really specific example right now because there's a very specific example that's in the news today, which is Tara Reid, who made a very credible accusation against Joe Biden. She had contemporary witnesses. Her mother went on a radio show and said that a senator raped her daughter. I mean, this at the time, and very credible witnesses. Well, Joe Biden, let's say that it's true, which— like I said, it's a very credible story. Then think how different America would be today in terms of who would be president, in terms of everything, if he was forced to marry her. And you already know, I mean, Joe Biden and, and Joe Biden's relationship, you know, they committed, a, they committed adultery before they got married. That's very clear from the timeline of their relationship. So when you look at this, I mean, we should just sit back and think if we were using the biblical law, look how different it would be. Do you really think Joe Biden would have gotten elected president if he had a second wife? And at the same time, let's put in real concrete terms. How much would that affect Joe Biden's relationship with Joe? I'm not sure it would affect much because I suspect 
you look at how Jill and Joe interact, and it, first of all, they both knew that they committed adultery before they were married, so it's not like a shock to her. And so it's really easy to take it out of a context where there are all these other things. There are already marital problems going on. There's already, like Bill and Hillary Clinton, there was already conveniences there. They were there for a political marriage, for political purposes, and him cheating on her, it didn't really bother her very much. That was very clear from the way she responded and the whole bimbo eruption and all that kind of stuff. Those things, I mean, it's really easy to pretend like, oh, this is going to be shocking and change things. But we can think about what happens with politicians today and how much that would just actually change the the world and their position and their position of power and their, you know, because it would have a huge impact. I mean, you know, while we're at it, if you imagine Trump with exactly 11 wives or whatever, you know, it would have been really hard for the Christian right to get behind that kind of a man. Right. And I think that, that we just look at these things and say, how can you do that? How can you do that to the first wife? And we should really be saying, how can you not stop these powerful people from raping? Because you would stop it pretty quick if they had to marry the woman that they raped. Because in how many people that are intentionally putting their child up there in that position and then they get raped by a senator, a lot of them are going to say, yeah, it's better for him for her to marry him because of the situation they're in than to to do anything else. So it would just create such a, 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 just a huge change in how we're looking at things. But instead we just go, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, like Charles was saying, it would, it would add many layers of complexity to, it it would, it would add regulation to many layers of complexity that already exist. You know, a woman would be, would have to be a lot more careful about who she married if she didn't want there to be other wives potentially down the road because, like you said, she has no control over that. Well, right. she does, in a sense, have control at the beginning where she has the opportunity to either marry this man or not. And there's nothing to say that in this situation where the man sleeps that the wife can't divorce the husband for immorality. You know what I mean? So, I mean, if she really doesn't want to continue to be married to this person, she really can't. She could also divorce her husband. And so, I mean, it's it's not like she has to stay trapped in this relationship because her husband has gone out and he he is you know he has broken their marriage vows you know he has broken their covenant so i mean so you, and you've got ones that didn't come in through covenant and so i mean there's there's different there's different relationships there's all these people. complexities that we want to make simple and eliminate the consequences of the complexities when we're really not eliminating and we're just making them more unjust right and women get abused i mean women for all that we say that we've created equality for women we've created a situation where women are much more likely to be abused today because we pretend like there's no obligation. We pretend like there's no protection. We, I mean, this verse here where it talks about the father having the father having authority, we've denied that. And we've, we've done a huge harm to women because we've, we've told fathers they have no responsibility. They have no authority. All you have to, everything's financial. Everything's financial. You get married. It's financial. As a father, it's financial. You just have to provide financially. But there's more complexity to people than just finances. There's a lot more that needs to be protected. And God's really God's really obvious about what some of those things are. And at the same time, there's also simplicity to it, too, which is that you cannot righteously go out and get extra wives. You know, aside from the legality of it, you know, the people who are doing that in Old Testament times. 
it, it was wrong because, you know, Christ is quite clear that from the beginning, you know, it was one man, one woman, and, you know, uh, no man put asunder. So, you know, that it's very clear that that is how it was set up. Um, you have in the um, qualifications for deacons, First Timothy 3.12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. You have the same thing for elders, that they need to be the husbands of one wife. So, you know, it, it is something that has, you know, if they if they sin in that way, it affects the rest of their life. And, and it's not something that they can rightly go into. And I do think that what we've done is by changing the terms of these things, you know, like the whole idea of a shotgun wedding, right? I mean, it used to be that that it wasn't that long ago that people respected the father's right to say, now you're going to marry her. You slept with her, now you're going to marry her. Or to go... I'm going to drive you off my property. If I ever see your face here again, I'll shoot you. And that wasn't considered abnormal. That was considered a father's right. And we think we've made it simpler, but we've actually made it much more complex and much more difficult to deal with. Because one of the things that the Bible does is bring these things into light rather than leaving them in darkness. And now, you know, the the tendency of, of, you know, our modern society is to put things in darkness and thinks that solves the problem when all it does is actually just hides it. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, you know, because the fact is for, you know, hundreds of years in Christian countries you know, or so-called Christian countries, polygamy has been illegal. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, we should acknowledge that, you know, they were doing that and they are, you know, perhaps are doing Oh, just a they were doing that because they said that you know this is not the way that God created it, and it's our duty to constrain evil, and we're going to constrain this evil of that is in our society. And so you know we can talk about the you know the way that God's that God set it up, and we can you know say that well there's a lot of problems in our society around marriage. There's a lot of problems in society around our loss about marriage. Um, but you know it is important to you know not not reject not reject the fact that despite mistakes that were that have been made perhaps that they were still legitimately trying to constrain legitimate evil. And I think that when you look at at the history and you look at how much, you know, further advanced that that you know Europe is, especially, you know, Western Europe and and America is, a lot of it does have to do with constraining this because it is a real weakness of society when you you undermine the family and the best order of the family is one man and one woman. And so that that push and a lot of times it was the lower level people the 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 weaker people in society that didn't have the same political strength that they they would be conformed to that and that the law would be enforced on them such that they were much more constrained and you the royalty in England and in other countries almost always was committing adultery I think when when uh, Philip Queen of Eliz- Queen Elizabeth's husband said to his son now King Charles that that he shouldn't like the the woman who is now queen that he should never marry her he should marry Diana and and have her so that his children are legitimate and legitimate heirs but of course you can keep a, a concubine on the side why couldn't you and that has been long term the pattern of of the royalty in Europe but still at the lower levels there was definitely the idea that you're supposed to only have one one man and one woman and that created a much stronger society and we just see that with the rise of materialism and rejection of spiritual things, that it now becomes 
love is love and it has to be the ruler of all things. And it's really destroying society. And these things where we look at the, the Eastern societies where they allow polygamy and we look at those and we go, how backwards are they? I think a lot of ways where we're rejecting any spiritual aspect to marriage is far more backwards than what we're seeing with the polygamous societies. And so one thing that, you know, having gone to places like Nigeria where, you know, you're dealing with Muslims where having four wives is not that uncommon. And you see the church goes there. And I think a lot of times the church has real trouble dealing with polygamy. When somebody comes into to faith and they make a profession of faith, a lot of the churches, what they immediately do is they say, okay, so you've got four wives. You need to get rid of three of them. You need to make all their children illegitimate. You need to treat them as bastards from now on. And only one wife and their children, those are the only ones that you're legitimately married to, legitimately the father to. And this is just so crushingly wrong, so destructive in this order of society that God did order these things in the Old Testament. And he even says you can't put away. And now all of a sudden the, the church frequently goes in there and missionaries frequently go in and tell them to put away where God said you're not allowed to put it away. And they think that their view of the New Testament, Christ rightly and truly saying, obviously, that that it's marriages between one man and one woman give them the right to come up with a law that's better than God's law. And God's law in dealing with those things is far better than anything that man can come up with. I mean, and God's law already talks about how that's not the optimum circumstance by disqualifying that person from leadership in the church. So you bring that man in, but you bring him in with all of his wives and all of their children. And then you just say, well, okay, but because of your status, you can't lead the church. And I think it's important, you know, Joshua made a comment before that you can't be righteous and be a polygamist. And that's almost true. But there is one example in history where that is not true because Jesus Christ was a polygamist. It's very clear that when he married Israel, that, that in Jeremiah, after Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that the language is used that Jesus Christ is married to both of them. You know, it says in Jeremiah 3, 6 through 9, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, After she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And so there's this picture that, that Christ, you know, and this doesn't happen to any human where their, their wife splits into two, but he could be in the righteous case of polygamy, and it is instructing what he should do. He didn't immediately put away the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. He kept both of them as wives until he put them away because of their hardness of heart, because they refused to stop committing adultery. And so he puts away the one with the Assyrian. Assyrians coming in and destroying them. He puts away Judah with, with the Romans coming in and destroying them. But that, that picture that you have to put away wives, that's actually, pick, that's actually contradictory to the picture of Jesus Christ. And, and this, is, this is really important because in the end what it's saying is, is in Galatians where it talks about is the law then against the promises of God? And God says no. I mean, God says, the, I mean, because the part of it is, is what God is saying is, is the law, this is how serious 
God takes these things is that the law was structured in such a way so that Jesus Christ was not against the law in the way that he dealt with. He's, we're dealing with nations as wives. And you could go, well, now when you're dealing with nations as wives, nothing applies anymore. But he's saying, no, I dealt lawfully with my wives. They really were wives. This is real. This is not some fake thing that I made up. This is righteousness. This is who I am. And that, I mean, this is, it's not this trivial thing. It's important. Right. In Jeremiah 3, 1, he quotes the only law in the Old Testament that's about giving a certificate of divorce. So he's clearly tying what happens with human marriage to this picture of being married to nations. You can't right. separate the two because Jeremiah 3 very clearly does not separate the two. Right. I mean, to me, in a lot of ways, when you see this picture and you see this about Christ, somebody who goes, we shouldn't think about these things in this way. No, that, that shows how much we should still think about them in this way. If they were this important that they established how Christ treated the net, who he's taking as a wife, if they were so important that he codified them into the world so that it would govern the things in the world, this hasn't passed away. This hasn't gone away. This isn't something that we go, well, it's just, it was all just purely ceremonial. No, these were, these were real, these were moral obligations. These were moral things that, that God built to show us what righteousness is. And so when we pretend like we don't have to consider them, there's, there's a real part where we kind of pretend like we kind of go, well, everything that Christ is doing is pretend. Everything that God is doing with his brides, is it's, it's a pretend thing. No, these are real. And the things we're doing are closer to, if anything. Right, they're shadows of the thing that has much more substance. Right. And so we cannot uh, throw the Marriage off. between a man and a woman is a shadow of between Christ and the right. church. It's want marriage between Christ and the church has more substance, even though the real marriages on this earth have real substance, real importance, real right. spiritual meaning, but they're just a shadow compared to the, the substance of the, the marriage of Christ and the church. So I do think, you know, talking about all these things, that, that the church, you know, we see in our society that informal polygamy is almost joked about. It's almost laughed about. It's like, you know, did you hook up this weekend? Is the level that it's treated as opposed to actually treating it the way that God treats it. And what we do is the church looks and goes, oh, polygamy is horrible. And the Mormons want to actually have, have multiple wives by covenant. This is horrible. This is terrible. And they don't treat the serial polygamy that we have in this country. They don't treat it with the same level of seriousness with which that they find, you know, formal covenantal polygamy to be so to such an abomination they don't consider the rest to be the same level of abomination and the church should really be considering how much damage it's doing and how much damage is being done in our culture and to to our families and wives in particular women in particular because we aren't taking it nearly as seriously as god does right because when you are you know becoming one with someone but then not not but then cutting them off you're depriving them of things where you know you they you have obligations toward them as a wife, um, and and you're and you're just cutting them off, and you know even even if they want that, it doesn't mean that that's that you're not really depriving them of things that you owe them. And in the end, this attitude trickles down, and it causes it causes us to have a very sinful attitude towards just sexual immorality in general. I mean, just and I don't even mean. Not even things that don't involve another person physically. Every, you know, everything from pornography to the way we think about things to the way we represent things. So it causes us to trivialize sexual immorality because we don't 
we don't believe that when two come together that they become one flesh. We don't believe there's a reality to that. And so we don't see a cost. And I mean, you know, and I don't, did not plan tonight to pick on President Biden, but the reality is, I mean, he says he has five grandchildren, he has seven. Two of them he doesn't acknowledge. And that's really horrific when you think about it because it does have that effect, and that's what we're doing. It's not just the wives, the women that are being affected by this. It's the children are, that are being affected by this. And, and the president of the United States openly says, that's not my grandchild, when DNA has proven that it is. There's no question that it is. But yet he doesn't see any obligation, and the society isn't putting any obligation with it because, hey, he just slept with a woman that weekend, so why does that matter? as opposed to, no, that creates real changes in society, real changes in the world. And so so the fact that we won't even force people to acknowledge their own children and their own grandchildren, I mean, that's a big problem. Or if, you know, whatever forcing is done is monetary. You have to send money when, you know, to, to raise a child, how much of that is monetary? And you look at the destruction in inner city because of the percentage of children that are born out of wedlock. And, I mean, it is just... It's just devastating, and it's devastating in particular communities, and and you know, and we're just killing off whole groups of people. We're destroying the next generation. We just need to recognize just how you know these things have huge consequences, and the church doesn't treat it as having as huge of a consequence as it does. We've been talking about polygamy, and polygamy really starts with the the idea that sexual immorality that 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 sexual urges don't need to be constrained and that that pressure doesn't need to be made and that they don't need to be made visible when it happens. Instead, the Bible teaches that you flee sexual immorality because it is such a, it is so easy to be captivated by it. And churches need to be dealing with that. They need to be looking at how they, they speak about it. They need to be looking about how they range young men and young women together they need to be considering even dating and these other things that all lead to these things that are destroying our society. We just need to be really careful that the church is teaching what God says about these things. It is a picture of the gospel. And when we break up this idea of one man and one woman and make it that, that each man has a, 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 a series of women and each woman has a series of men, this is a real distortion of the gospel. And the church needs to be speaking about it and getting it back to where we had at least a social more that says that it doesn't happen instead of bragging about how many children, how many people that you've laid with. And until the church does that, the church will continue to be weak. Thanks for joining us. This has been the conquering truth, a project of reformation Baptist church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thank you.